This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and editors about politics. It's Thursday, May 30th. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. Beto O'Rourke almost defeated Ted Cruz in the 2018 Texas Senate race. Although there will be another open Senate seat in 2020, O'Rourke announced on March 14th that he would compete instead for the Democratic presidential nomination. He raised $6 million in the first 24 hours of his campaign, but most early polls now show him near the bottom of a crowded field. This week, as part of a campaign reboot, he joined Margaret Brennan for an interview on Face the Nation. Look, I feel really good about the way that we're campaigning. Uh, I'm going to people where they are in their communities. Uh, No me importa, I do not care how red or blue, rural or urban, I'm showing up to listen to them. And what they're telling me is they want this country to come together around our shared challenges. They want people to be able to see a doctor or afford their prescription medications. They want this economy to work for everyone so that folks don't have to work two or three jobs just to get by. They want us to address this ballooning student loan debt crisis. They want to make sure that we confront climate change before it is too late for this and every generation that follows. So I'm listening to them uh, more than I am to the headline writers. William Finnegan joins me to discuss O'Rourke's struggling candidacy, the other candidates, and the Democratic Party's search for someone who can defeat Donald Trump. Bill, welcome. Ah, Glad to be here. You have spent quite a bit of time with Beto O'Rourke in recent weeks uh, in Texas and Iowa in particular. Why do you think his star faded so quickly, at least in this early phase of the campaign? Well, I think he had a bad strategy, really. This idea, he talks about showing up for everybody as kind of his, not just his campaign philosophy, it goes beyond that. It's a sort of post-partisan, I mean, I call it show-upism. When he ran for Senate in Texas, he said, I'm going to visit all 254 counties, you know, and he did. He Driving himself, um, this is kind of his thing. And he's very much brought that Senate campaign strategy into this presidential race. It worked great in Texas. I mean, he didn't win, but he came very close to beating Cruz. Big surprise in, you know, red, red Texas. But on the national stage, especially, um, I mean, you just can't get to the whole nation coffee shop by coffee shop. And um, so there's that. And he talks about visiting, you know, really Republican communities and, and hearing what they have to say. And, and that's all very well. But in a Democratic primary, it actually doesn't make much sense. You're looking for Democratic votes and, and the Republicans are not going to be voting in your caucuses or your primaries. So it's a there's that sort of tactical mistake. Um, there's also just the fact that Last year, when he kind of caught on nationally, it's, he, that's how he raised so much money for his Senate campaign, was national. Donors all over the country kind of heard about this guy. He raised $80 million for the Senate race, you know, which is a record. He was running against Ted Cruz. <laughs> he didn't have it. Not the, the most popular member of the Senate. Exact opposite, not even in Texas. Yeah. And so he um, doesn't have an opponent to sort of focus the minds like now. In fact, he's running against 20 relatively progressive Democrats, and he's just kind of lost in the shuffle, really. You know, he began it to come under attack pretty quickly as a privileged white male. And, you know, these endless road trips where he seemed to be communing with himself, even though he makes such a big point of going on these listening tours. How much was that a factor in the decline? Well, yeah, there was this period after he lost in the Senate in November 
when he was trying to decide what to do next. And he had actually said on 60 Minutes, I'm not running in 2020. And now here he was being sort of publicly besieged. I mean, he went on TV with Oprah Winfrey, who was basically begging him, you know, what will it take to get you to say yes? I mean, people To run really, for the president. To run for presidency. So he went through this self-described funk and, and kind of drove around, blogged on medium.com and so on, and, and became kind of risible, I think, to a certain number of people like, like, who does this guy think he is? And in various other kind of gaffes and missteps um, as he came up to the announcement in, in March, um, he left himself quite open to uh, mockery, criticism, and ended up doing a sort of apology tour during the rollout. A number of Democratic leaders, too, were upset that he didn't want to run for this new open Senate seat. The Senate desperately needs more Democratic candidates. Did you talk to him about that? Um, I did ask him about it. Uh, he mentioned other people who were planning to run who he thinks are strong candidates and he plans to support. I think, though, that um, it would be tough. He wouldn't have that good a chance. I mean, he didn't beat Ted Cruz, whom everybody loathes, even in Texas. John Cornyn is not as vulnerable. So that would be a very tough race, I think. It's not, it's not all that easy to run for the presidency either. But um, he talks in these maddening generalities about living our values and showing up for everybody. But interestingly, compared to Elizabeth Warren, uh, Pete Buttigieg, and Bernie Sanders, say, just to name three, all of whom have really clear policy proposals, it's hard to figure out exactly what he believes. Yeah, he has these um, these great generalities that I try to get to the bottom of asking him and, and uh, generally interrogating. But he has rolled out a couple of big policy proposals, um, one on climate change, um, just yesterday a big one on immigration. A lot of people, including Buttigieg, actually have come under pressure, like, what are you going to do? Like, what are the... Elizabeth Warren is so far out in front, and and she's thought through all kinds of things that, that other candidates seem not to have. And of course, Bernie has a sort of carryover plan and, and vision. His, his politics are very clear. Nobody would ask him for that sort of stuff. But O'Rourke is definitely having to um, sort of bulk up and be ready for that stuff. And, and he's a little late to it, although his idea, his philosophy is very much, I need to listen. I need to learn. I need to find out what matters to people, and then I will, which, you know, uh, you're doing it on the fly. The campaign has begun. So he is from El Paso, so that distinguishes him from everybody else. What is his immigration plan? Well, um, this thing he's just rolled out is is a basically things he's been saying for a while. He He's very familiar with the border. I mean, he grew up on the border when he was in Congress. He was in the Homeland Security Committee working on border issues. Some of the legislation he co-sponsored with Republicans um, that passed, it's all about beefing up points of entry and enhancing cross-border trade. I mean, this is kind of a field of expertise for him. And so, as a result, for instance, I mean, there are a number of purity questions that the Democratic candidates are being asked. Will you abolish ICE? That's one of them. He's supposed to say yes, of course, and he emphatically says no. He knows ICE quite well and works with him and plenty of people who work for ICE live in his district or his former congressional district. He has certainly been critical of ICE abuses under Obama as well as under Trump and will say something like, I immediately end internal ICE raids. Those are raids in towns and communities far from the border, far from the migrant trail, something that's not provoked by criminal behavior or border security. It's just an ICE 
policy that um, he opposes. I mean, he, he's, he's quite specific about what he will do and what he won't do. And he connects border security very much to foreign policy. President Trump is, has threatened to – he's actually following through on this threat. To cut off aid to yeah, Central Yeah, to cut off America. aid to the Northern Triangle countries that are called um, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, where most of the recent asylum seekers have come from. And O'Rourke knows quite a bit about those countries. Um, his wife is taught school in Guatemala, and he's taken a particular interest in it. And he thinks we should, you know, double and redouble aid to those countries to help them build civil society and peace so that people won't be fleeing. And that's, to him, part of immigration policy. And his record in the House is pretty moderate, and he voted with Republicans a fair number of times. Yeah, that's a vulnerability now for him. Um, I mean, his main vulnerabilities in the Democratic race are are from the left. And he, um, yeah, he has some votes, a couple of um, votes that the oil industry liked to lift an export, an oil export ban and and another to expedite drilling in the eastern Gulf of Mexico um, and other votes with Republicans um, that uh, I think he finds hard to defend now. So where does he stand on climate change? I mean, he supports the the Green New Deal, uh, the proposal put forward, very ambitious proposal by uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Joe Markey earlier this year. O'Rourke's plan, which he rolled out a few weeks ago, is uh, not quite that ambitious. I mean, it's $5 trillion. It's gigantic over 10 years, um, but with a goal of zero net emissions by 2050. So some environmental organizations, Greenpeace, the League of Conservation Voters, he has quite a good record with them. You know, they like it. Um, Other groups like the Sunrise Movement, youth-led environmental organization, uh, don't like it. It's not, you know, that's not soon enough. Um, but um, it's pretty serious uh, policy proposals. I mean, the oil and gas industry is not going to be happy if anything close to this comes out. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus. You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus. But somehow that's that's where we are. Susan Glasser, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Interestingly, I, I noticed in your piece uh, for the New Yorker, he di- has not up until this point invoked Trump as he's out there uh, campaigning. But in his interview with Brennan, he accused the president of being both the arsonist and the firefighter in his recently announced bailout of American farmers amid the trade war with China and of escalating tensions and provoking war in the Middle East. So that seems to be part of this reboot? Yes, I've noticed that shift too. Um, On the trail, I saw him in plenty of events in Iowa and New Hampshire, South Carolina, um, yeah, he sort of stays away from attacking Trump, which is a sure applause line. In fact, he says, you know, the the biggest applause line in every talk I give is when I end a sentence, you know, defeat Donald Trump. People just um, – but he's kind of stayed away from that. You know, he doesn't like to demonize Republicans. He's – it's this positive thing. We're all in this together type stuff. But um, but it's true. I've noticed this this kind of reboot where he started doing television, realizing this is a national – campaign, I need to reach a national audience. And um, and so he's been on Face the Nation and The View and, you know, Rachel Maddow and so on. 
lately did a CNN town hall. And in those appearances, which have all been in the past couple of weeks, he's suddenly he's talking about Trump and getting those, you know, cheers from the crowd in the case of a CNN town hall and being more, I wouldn't use the word divisive, but, but specific about, you know, here's the opponent. Biden has been unsparing in his attacks, really making Trump the centerpiece of his campaign. You know, he said in his announcement video, I believe history will look back on these four years of this president and all he embraces as an aberrant moment in time. But if we give Donald Trump eight years in the White House, he will forever and fundamentally change the character of this nation. So he's gambling and he, so far quite successfully that that's the way to win. Based on your reporting in these two key states, Iowa and Texas, what are you picking up about how the Democrats should take on Trump? Biden's a little bit, you know, sort of above the fray in that way. He's not running against these other Democratic hopefuls. Um, He comes in with the strongest poll numbers by far, the greatest name recognition. And I think rightly just sort of concentrates his fire on Trump. This is what we're about in the next election. The other candidates with less name recognition, the two dozen, they can do that, but that's, there's nothing particularly distinguishing about them. I, I mean, you won't hear Biden, I don't think, pressed as you hear new candidates like Buttigieg and O'Rourke. But what are you going to do? What's your program? Give us more policy proposals. Um, Biden won't get that really. He can. He's in a position to concentrate his fire on the, the real opponent across the way. I think that plays very, very well nationally. I don't know about over the long sort of ground game grind of the first primary states. You know, you have people like O'Rourke down on the ground learning all about soybeans and talking about them knowledgeably to people in Iowa, and they eat that up, from what I've, so to speak, from what I've seen. Um, but as far as I can tell, Biden's not planning to campaign in that way. I mean, he's very light schedule so far. Um, these almost sort of ceremonial events. He's not down on the ground driving himself from place to place like, like O'Rourke is. So it's a, it's a really different scale and a different approach. Democrats who aren't sold on Biden seem to be in search of the next Barack Obama. So, And I was thinking about this yesterday, and I went back to your very early piece about Obama when he was running in the Illinois Senate race. Kirk Dillard, who was a Republican state senator, told you then that he knew from the first day he walked into the chamber that he was destined for great things and that Republicans feared that he would become a rock star. Do you see this? I mean, I feel like Democrats initially thought, oh, Beto O'Rourke, maybe he's the next Obama. And now many of them are saying, oh, Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, that that is exactly what people say. And I think it's sort of what President Trump fears. There was all this buzz around O'Rourke um, during the Senate campaign and even after he lost. In fact, Cruz's campaign manager um, the day after he lost said, this guy's a phenom. There's nobody else with this kind of talent in the Democratic Party. I don't know what he would do if he didn't run for president now. I mean, you don't know how much kind of psychological gaming there is in that, but he, he was that kind of rock star, as they say, in, in the Texas campaign um, and hasn't been in, in this campaign so far. But um, I think like, like Trump, for instance, in February went to El Paso and did a rally right by the border um, that some people were calling the kickoff rally for his 2020 campaign. And I think he was he was nervous about O'Rourke, who 
had a dueling rally just down the street. And, and of course, Trump wildly um, exaggerated the size of his crowd and, you know, said nobody went to see Beto and that kind of stuff. But I think he was worried that this was some kind of phenom, perhaps, you know, as he, as he was such a phenomenon, Trump. You know, he just rose past all these much more qualified candidates himself in the Republican primaries and stayed above them. I mean, his numbers just went up and stayed up. It was like the laws of political gravity were suspended. And I think he was a little worried that this O'Rourke guy might be that. And so far, he's proved not to be. But uh, the Democrats are looking for such a person. Mayor Pete, until just a week or so ago, he too seemed to defy the laws of gravity, at least, you know, as the press was reporting on him. And now he seems to be trailing down a little bit. Well, he, he's perfect sort of candidate for the media, and um, he he's so good on television and podcasts and you name it. He's, he's really put together. Uh, but I don't think he's really caught on with the voters yet. I mean, the polls don't reflect any big movement toward him. I mean, he's become a midfield figure. He's, he's perhaps third or fourth. Um, O'Rourke's down to maybe sixth now. But almost all those people are in single digits. I mean, it's only Sanders usually and, and Biden who come in double digits in these polls. And these polls, of course, don't mean all that much at this point. I think Biden's numbers, for instance, are very, very soft. You see him at 45 percent. That could collapse with one big mistake. And I think there's a lot of ammunition lying around in Biden's past that could be problematic. And so that these, these are things are not in any way definitive at this moment. But Buttigieg is, in, in, I think, in a strong position. He can only rise, I think. And Elizabeth Warren is, I've been struck with her in the last couple of weeks, how much better a campaigner she has become. You've been watching her pretty closely. What do you think? I agree. And I also think it's just that she's getting a little more attention so that she's not just appearing on the news in these five-second clips that are inevitably, you know, when she shakes her fist and shouts the sort of high point of a speech, perhaps. But if you give her a little more time, not only does she have a credible command of policy and what she wants to do and around economics and democracy generally, I mean, she's really, really strong, but she's professorial in sort of the good sense. She can take questions. She's sort of loose on her feet. She's funny. Um, and she has an incredible sort of rags to riches story, which I've heard short versions, medium versions, long versions of it. They're all quite powerful from, you know, coming from real poverty in Oklahoma. And it connects to policy. She's got a lot of strengths as a campaigner. And if she, I mean, I think there's a lot of gender bias she needs to overcome, as of course Hillary did. Um, and Kamala Harris does too. And um, But if she's sort of given the space, I expect in the debates, there's going to be some debates in June finally. I mean, finally, they're a year and a half early, but um, the uh, Democrats are going to start having public debates. And, and I expect Warren will be able to actually show herself in, in a way that will surprise a lot of voters because she really is deserved. Her warmth is not there in those five-second clips of her shouting something. Thanks so much, Bill. William Finnegan is a New Yorker staff writer and the author of Barbarian Days, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Biography in 2016. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program is produced by Alex Barron for newyorker.com with assistance from Kylie Warner. I'm Dorothy Wickenden.